Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. Britain is no longer part of the European Union. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists. China is looking to lead a new world order that better aligns with its political views and interests. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We have never had a century without great power conflict of some kind. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Unqualified Statesman, the show where James and I pretend we know something about geopolitics. James, how two you doing? idiots, two idiots talk about the world. I'm doing good. It's a big week. It is a big week. Um, should we roll straight into it? Do you want to start with uh, talking about Sweden and what happened with NATO Sweden. today? All right. So we've talked about this before. I want to say, I think we called it. So uh, we talked, I think it was the last episode because it's been a, it's been a few weeks since we last record recorded, but um, we said Turkey was holding out on letting Sweden into NATO just in the past couple of hours, right before we started this, they released that hold. Right. And we, we had a lot of theories on like, this was the probable, most probable path um, that, Erdogan was holding out till after he won his election, which he did. It had to go to a runoff, but he still won it. Um, and then he also may have been successful in, in negotiating F the sale of F-16s from the U.S. This is still un unclear, uh, but many suspect that uh, we will sell him. We will sell Turkey F-16s in the future. And in return, uh, Sweden is now pretty much guaranteed a path into the European, uh, excuse me, not the European Union, shoot, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Yeah, what's the difference, right? EU, NATO, same thing. Well, EU is only possible because NATO's there. Any European listeners would probably hate that statement. <laughs> so actually, okay, so here's a question. Can you explain why Turkey getting F-16s from the US is sort of a big deal and why that's a concession that Erdogan was likely so keen to get. I think it's just a, a too honest. I haven't really thought much about that perspective. But if I had to guess, it was a it's a status symbol, uh, and and F sixteens are not just status symbol, but also like military power symbol. Um, for 16s, even though they're a little bit older and we don't fly them much anymore, it's we're F-18s and F-35s, but we sell them to a lot of our allies and they're still considered, I think they're a fourth generation, no, third generation jet. So um, they're better than most else, everything else out there, um, other than the fourth and the fifth generation, the fifth generation being like the, the super cutting edge F-35s, I think the fourth. I think F-18 is a fourth generation. Um, it sounds right to me. Yeah. Um, fifth but, gen might include uh, some of the more, I think there's like, there's a point in development that's not, like it's not right. like released yet. 
China and Russia have corresponding. It's it that those generation markers aren't are majorly important. It's just a way of like kind of broadly classifying different jets. Um, you know, it's, roughly it's based like, on when they it's released. Like Gen Z it. and millennials, right? Like, right. Just <laughs> are you implying that Gen Z is better than life. millennials? I think you're implying that Gen Z is better than millennial because it uh, came later. I have no bias in That's that whatsoever. Cap. That's cap. Okay, I'm canceling the show. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and there's our cold open. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. Okay. Um, um, anyway, I, 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 back to F-16s. I'd have to, th- I'd have to do a little more research on why Erdogan wanted F-16s that much. I think one of the concerns of giving them to him was that Turkey is still, you know, oddly relatively close with Russia. Um, until before this war broke out, so there was some concerns over the uh, yeah, right, like technology I, 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 getting leaked. Yeah, yeah, that was some of the some of the concern was because what was it? I think four or five years ago, Turkey and Russia had ironed out a deal for Turkey to buy what is S four hundred missile defense systems from Russia, and mm-hmm. so there was concern that if the Turks had proprietary American military technology like the F-16s that that could somehow make its way over to the Russians and they could then use that to improve their air defense systems to be able to combat like American weapons better. This is this is all hypothesis about the F-16s but what yeah, we do know for a fact is, is, it, nope. is that recently ahead of NATO's summit here uh, coming up soon very soon Turkey released its hold on Sweden's accession into NATO. Um, and this did, as we kind of predicted, came on the heels of Erdogan claiming victory his election. in his election. <clears throat> and we'll see if our prediction about the the fighters was correct. The other thing that he could have been leveraging for was, uh, or people thought he could have been leveraging for, was um, a faster path to EU citizenship. Uh, not him himself, but the, the country, maybe EU the membership is a better term. Yeah, membership. Um, but it's, since that has kind of been stuck in limbo for a while, but we'll see. Either way, what we'll reconvene next week and and give you guys the full download on whatever happens at the at the NATO summit because I'm sure this will be a one of the major topics of discussion. Yeah, it, one is membership regarding money; the other is membership regarding missiles. So. Mm-hmm. Different different problems for different memberships. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. But all right. So speaking of a cozy relationship with Russia, I think we should roll into our first major topic. Let's talk which... about hot dogs. We, we <laughs> no. Hold on. This is I've been wanting. Oh to my start. gosh! Look, look. This guy loves we Joey think, Chestnut. Loves think, Joey Chestnut. We think that. The path or the the country of entrepreneurship is America. But I gotta say, based on uh, shoot, how do you say it? Prigozhin? Did I get it right? Prigozhin. Prigozhin, right? This is the Wagner Group mercenary guy that everybody's been talking about. But before we get into all that, this guy, right? He's a convict because he's like literally robbing people in the streets in the Soviet Union's in the eighties. So the Soviet Union threw him in jail. Right, he was stuck in there, and then after the fall of the, of the Soviet Union, he's let out, and uh, so he gets back into it. It's kind of a rough and tumble time, and and 
you know, the crony capitalism of the post-Soviet Union in the 90s. So he starts selling hot dogs and in his own words, making money hand over fist, selling hot dogs. Right. Like and then he works his way up. Are they Russian hot dogs or are they American hot dogs? I don't know, man, but like <laughs> hot dogs. And then, you know, fast forward a couple decades, he's one of Putin's right hand mans. He's running a mercenary group in like messing up countries in in Africa and Syria and then Ukraine, right? Like this guy goes from selling hot dogs to being important on the world stage, right? Like he's I mean, corrupt, not even just sure, dogs, but, but like, like that's a convict, right? But that's a, a meteoric rise. Like I don't know why we're not talking about that more. Tail yeah, to hot be, dog stands to geopolitical next time, player. Next time I'm coming out of a bar drunk and I want some some street dogs, I'm going to be a lot more respectful because that could be the next like, you know, minute. In twenty or, years, that guy could own a private military company. You know, why stop there? They could, you know, that could be the next Secretary of Defense or something, Secretary of State. I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, knowing knowing what the common man wants. Sure, if you want to get philosophical about it. How many like, men wants hot dogs? Dude. So doesn't matter I, where you are in the world, apparently. So can we just call this the hot dog rebellion? <laughs> I kinda like that actually. It's kinda funny. <laughs> the hot anyway. dog rebellion ended in uh we'll So what do you know about the hot dog rebellion? Because everybody's been talking about it. It's kinda old news now. Left it's a, it's a cycle, but we, we thought it was important to, to bring it up. Yeah, I think it's important to, so now, you know, the dust is settled and it's, it's not in the news cycle anymore, but to try to actually understand what happened, why did it happen? And like, what matters now because it happened, right? And so, also, and also I, I think that what we thought was happening versus what's actually happening. Yeah, that, so that's the key difference after, you know, kind of, um, was it retrospect is 2020 hindsight like we, hindsight is 2020 hindsight. Same thing. Yeah. Tomato, tomato, hot dog, <laughs> hot, hot dog, brought worst. Uh, I was going to say that too, but that's just not, that's just not brought worst anyway. is so much better. Uh, so yeah, so it was, so this happened You're right, it about, is. about a month ago. Yeah, I know I'm right on that one like a month ago or so and when it was when it started unfolding it was it was a friday night here in the u.s when we started getting news about it and headlines and everyone and their mom's grandma's dog became a russian military analyst for 48 hours that's what and... i loved about this ukraine war <laughs> this is everyone everyone just, becomes the expert just, for like so, two days and then they don't talk about it anymore so it's everybody so was an expert on deep sea submersibles and then we switched to being an expert on on defense russian defense politics yeah that that whole week was was just that was ridiculous like <laughs> like that was a that was a that was a that was a crazy news cycle week um but so the news started breaking on that friday night and basically it looked like initially there was some sort of coup attempt that was happening in in russia so we were getting reports that this that this guy prigozhin was taking his troops and marching on moscow and we what we were 
I mean, I had, I didn't know a ton about this guy before I hadn't read much about him. I'm also not claiming to be a Russia expert. So, you know, was just sort You're of going with the, that's the, that's, the whole, <laughs> that's kind of the whole stick. That's our stick you know, here. We don't know what we're talking but, about. We're just talking about it. <laughs> but following the headlines, it was, you know, everyone was chomping at the bit that like, this is a, this is, this is not just a rebellion. This is like a, this is a full blown coup attempt. These guys are going to, they're going to kill Putin. They're going to take over Russia. It's going to be this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this whole thing. You know, I remember kind of joking that Friday night, I, I think we were texting or something. I remember joking being like, Oh, like, might wake up to a new world tomorrow, you know, and it turned out I that was, was like, just okay, like, Andrew, come on. Yeah, <laughs> I was just go, not go the eat case. a hot dog, won't you? Not the case whatsoever. But so we know now what what really was was happening was so Prigozhin was sort of making his own kind of like political move, I guess you would say. So he well, the reason worth. That, it's worth saying why he exists, right? The Wagner group is, he's the, one of the co-founders. I guess there was another more military guy. He's the guy with all the connection. He's the, he's the Putin crony, right? He was, he was serving food to the, not necessarily to Putin, but he was a food supplier to Putin. So he had kind of connections in, in Putin's world. He exists because, and, and the Wagner group exists. So until the Ukraine war, Russia and Putin specifically could have denied plausible deniability when they send paramilitary operations into parts of Africa, into propping up the Syrian regime of Bashar Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad. Thank you. We're going to get subtitles for my part of this. Um, Right. Like he, he was involved in there's allegations. I'm not sure. This is like a, a, another step, but like there was allegations that the Wagner group and and he this this guy was involved in um, the fake news getting Donald Trump into office. Some some claim um, he was involved in Crimea in 2014, right? The first Ukrainian incursion by Russia. So or the Russian incursion into Ukraine better way of saying it right so this guy this guy and his group exists to give uh putin deniability but on the flip side he was getting more and more support he was getting massive amounts of convicts because that's how he works he he gets these convicts from russian prisons signs them for six month deals afterwards they get their freedom but in the meantime they're basically cannon fodder uh but they're very devoted to him uh but so he was gaining more and more support. There's this huge military operation that's not under the control of the Russian state that the defense minister and the chief of staff, particularly for so the, the head of the Russian army, they didn't like the power that this guy was amassing. So they had, with Putin's, they got Putin to get him, Prigozhin, to sign a thing saying that as of July 1st, all the, all the, quasi-military fighters would be integrated into the defense ministry. So obviously, this was a threat to Prigozhin. He saw him getting written off the script and getting killed off, right? So like, on on one hand, it existed to give Putin deniability. But now with the, the Ukraine war, like, it was out in the open. There's no deniability anymore. 
So that, well, that was yeah. kind of the precursor to all this and, and the forces that led uh, Prigozhin to say, hey, I need to do something, right? And he also, this whole time, had been fighting with that chief of staff and that defense minister, kind of the head honchos in their defense ministry, right? They were always at odds. Um, Putin was the only kind of thing that kept them pointing in the same direction. They both worked for Putin, some in the official capacity, of the defense ministry and Prigozhin as his like, you know, mercenary arm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, no, I think that that's helpful and it helps give background on who this guy is and, and why he's a player. And so to kind of finish the, the, the sort of objective story about what actually happened over the course of that 48 to seven. 72 hours. 36 hours. 36 hours. 36, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he, so Prigozhin started by posting these videos saying that the Russian defense ministry had bombed and killed some of his troops. And so he was beginning a quote, march for justice, end quote, to get justice for his killed troops. And so he took his, he took a, a column and some armor and began heading towards Moscow. At this point in time, he'd been armor stationed. Tanks. I believe he was on the near like the, the Northern Ukrainian border of Russia in that area. So he, he was in that, I don't know if there was a specific town that he was stationed in, but he began heading North. They took over or I guess stopped by a Russian town called Rostov and they basically walked in people like were happy to see him uh because he apparently has a good reputation and I mean like you were saying he'd been amassing power and had supporters and stuff so they took over this town of Rostov and then continued their march on Moscow and for all like at, at first it seemed like they were gonna just get to Moscow without much trouble and then in a seemingly crazy turn of events, all of a sudden he just stopped and the Kremlin announced that there was a deal that had been made and Prigozhin was essentially banished to Belarus and the Belarusian president had helped broker some agreement where Prigozhin would stop his march and that would be sort of the end of this little sort of smoldering rebellion i guess and the whole thing just seemed crazy at the time because it was just headline after headline after headline and nobody knew seemingly what was going on everybody was like i said chomping at the bit for it to be a full-blown russian the, coup the most recent thing die. is there was a crazy you know, the, the most recent thing well before this there was basically when it was dissolved um all these basically what was threatened to happen happened is that all the existing fighters on in the Wagner group were basically signing in to become con conscripts in the, in the Russian military. And then only a couple of hours ago, uh, Putin met with Prigozhin and all the like 30, 35 uh, leaders and commanders of the Wagner group and had a, like a three hour discussion with them. There doesn't seem to be any repercussions. Um, that defense minister that Prigozhin was rallying against. And like, again, this whole time, he was never anti-Putin. He was very pro-Putin, pro-Russia. Um, 
but he just didn't like these leaders of the defense ministry. And since then, this defense minister has been removed, uh, which is an interesting twist. Yeah, I think I think that whole thing is is like a, is is interesting and kind of helps anyone have a little bit more understanding of how Russian politics might work, right? So, none of Prigozhin's videos, propaganda, call it whatever you will. At no point did he ever mention Putin by name, say that he was anti-Putin. Because he's not. He he's, Putin, against Putin. he's Putin's guy. <clears throat> he only exists because Putin has given him power and money over the years. And he knows that. Mm -hmm. He's not biting the hand that feeds him. He's biting the other hands that's trying to take what he sees is rightfully his from, from Putin, right? Like they're all competing for Putin's attention and um, kind of influence from him. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I think that's some of the analysis that made more sense to me was that for Prigozhin, it was somewhat of a political move for himself of trying to like rail against some of the other defense leaders, military leaders and like position himself right where he can essentially push them out or be against them and sort of rise above them in the power hierarchy that is Russian military leaders. So I, I want to highlight like two perspectives on this. The first perspective is the one that was kind of getting pushed during it. And even after it by fairly well informed sources is that, you know, look, Prigozhin, as he was marching north, like there's nobody that came out to stop him, the National Guard, the military, the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB. They didn't do anything to stop him. The people welcomed him, um, yada, yada, yada. And and, and they use this data point as a, a evidence that Putin's power is waning, right? And that this was going to be a big thing. But like a couple of points here, as we pointed out, right? He, like, Prigozhin is not the hero here, right? His group, Wagner Group, has corrupt, cor committed atrocious war crimes. Not that the rest of the Russian regulars are any be better, but like the Wagner Group has been directly attributed to some terrible things, including killing a deserter with a, uh, uh, with a, I think it was a hammer, right? Like it's, it's like, he is not the hero here. Right. And second of mm -hmm. all, he is, um, I, I don't know. It, then the West was like throughout this whole thing, not the West, but a lot of media outlets and you know, as we said, new experts on Russian politics were saying like, oh, the, you know, they're going to he's going to topple Putin. This is a sign of the end of Putin's regime. The war is coming again, yada, yada, yada. Prigozhin is very pro-Ukrainian war, right? Like pro-Russia take, taking over Ukraine. Like there's no <laughs> doubt about that. He has benefited from it personally. His group has benefited from it. He is a very like the other thing is like. I don't think you want Putin removed at a time like this because you will have fights, like legitimate battles between Prigozhin and all these other people who are like in Putin's inner circle. Um, so I, I think people kind of claim this as like, a, oh, this this could be the end of the war. And like this was this was the opposite of what was happening there. Uh, I, I can't speak to why, you know, the Russian military or the Russian police didn't try to stop this group. But it could have been on Putin's direct orders of like, hey, I know I can resolve this uh, with Prigozhin. Like, he's my guy. As he did resolve it peacefully, 
So there's no reason for me to like have Russians fighting Russians. Uh, I think with some of the calculus of going through Putin's head. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Do you think that because it happened, though it's still a net negative for Putin because it makes him look, it kind of makes him look less like the mob boss who's in charge of everyone, right? Like this, I mean, this it was, you know, a big deal and it garnered international attention and, and it doesn't, I don't see really how it is a net benefit for Putin. I mean, I think oh, I, like, don't, I don't think it's a benefit at all. I just think it's not the, the, the final nail in Putin's coffin that everybody's claiming it is, or even a nail in his coffin, right? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. I think like one of the things that it was, it was essentially, I mean, one way, a better way of looking at it was a labor strike. Like it was a group that was getting outed and at the bot, that CEO, if you want to think of it that way of this group that was kind of getting pushed aside um, by other, you know, maybe other workers, if you want to think of the Russian military as other workers, like, and the Russian military leadership. And so Prigozhin and his group went on strike and they marched, you know, it just took the form of marching up towards, like it, it wasn't an armed rebellion. They had tanks instead of right. signs. They had tanks instead of signs, but it was a military group, right? Like it wasn't that they were like trying to take the capital. In fact, I think Prigozhin stopped because he's like, I don't, I don't know if I... He, he got so far that it was kind of like, well... If I try to take the capital, what? it's going to go badly for me. And once I take the capital, that's, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a way, that's, like that's crossing I can't, the Rubicon. I can't control it. You know, right? When when the Roman legions, uh, you know, crossed the Rubicon River, that wasn't allowed in, in, in ancient Rome because, like, that was crossing into the city of Rome and you weren't allowed to bring the military force into Rome. At that point, you were... You know, but Caesar was the first one to do that. And he marched in with his legions and took Rome. And that would have been the equivalent. Like, hey, I'm marching in with my legions and taking Moscow. And you can't, you cannot yeah, undo that it, action, right? So I think... Per, there, there's no... Yeah. You give yourself no out if you do right. that. Whereas at least for now, Prigozhin is still alive. And, you know, his group is not... He might... You know, they're getting integrated into the regular Russian force because, again, there's no use for them anymore as a mercenary group. They don't need plausible deniability. That's gone out the window. Yeah. Yeah, they don't need it anymore. I just I just would hesitate so. to say that, like, oh, this is this is the death knell that everybody for Putin that everybody claiming it claims it is. Um, yeah. I, I think now that we're a couple weeks removed, I'm in, I'm in full agreement with that. I, I, it definitely, I think, makes his position seem weaker than it was before. No, he came out on happened. top. He managed it. You know, there wasn't any bloodshed. He Maybe he was trying to, I don't know, this is theory, but like maybe he needed a it's reason to get rid of that defense minister. And he, now he had one, right? That's maybe my speculation, right? Like he, he, he holds power not because he's this institutional leader. He holds power because he's the kind of linchpin or the kingpin 
of all these groups of cronies and you know, corruption, right? And he kind of have to balance, has to balance all those groups, and that's what he did in this case. He balanced these groups. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's not a good look. I think he probably Putin probably would have preferred it never happened, but it did. I don't think it necessarily makes him look as weak as Western media Just, is claiming. It's not as, yeah. Yeah, I think that is kind of the final conclusion is, is in the moment, it was very much like, this is going to be the end of Putin. This is a full-blown coup. This is, you know, all of these sorts of things. And now, you know, it, it it's kind it's of just, it, back to same old, same old with Russia. And it's like, you know, wasn't a great look for Putin, but he's still, you know, it kind of, I guess, to, I guess to your point, it kind of shows that he is very cemented in his position because there weren't really any other like no it wasn't like prigozhin had you know random russian elites popping right. up to come to his cause or something like that right like there was a notable notable lack of anybody else jumping on board with this whole yeah, i mean that's that's got to be a march good point because if you're going to march on russia russia or march on moscow you put out feelers to all the other influential people in russia Russian society, right? And none of them stood up to back up Prigozhin. So there was no movement against Putin. You know, and that would that would have been the moment of like, if there was an underground rebellion that wanted to out Putin and get out of the war, that would have been the, you know, you have armed fighters, they're making it towards Moscow, nobody's fighting them. That would have been the moment. But nobody did, which is to say Putin still holds power. You know, it's probably power through fear. I'm not saying he pulled power through popular support, although it does seem to be like he has a lot of popular support. There was like, uh, I don't know if you saw that video of like people singing basically an anthem to, to it was like a pop song praising Russia. Well, I mean, I think that's a little different, like a, like a, like a nationalist yeah. Russia song is different than a song about but, Putin, but he's, his propaganda people are, very good at conflating those working conflating hard. the two ideas right pro, <laughs> they are wearing out those keyboards is the same as being pro pro putin but i, I also just want to highlight well, too not just that it's not a death now for putin but also like there was like a big support for Prigozhin to 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 win and to take over and to knock putin out and i just don't think people realized like this is not a good guy that would have been a bad outcome like you would have had a a much more irrational actor, you know, the guy was a conflict convict jokes aside, like he literally, he was convicted for like robbing people, him and a couple other guys would go up to like a young woman, grab her by the neck and like pull out all her jewels and, and valuables out and then run off. Like that was what he was convicted for in the Soviet Union. You know, and I'm sure he claims it false or whatever, but like, this was not a, a good, like it would have not have been a good outcome for him to to take Mo- Moscow and out Putin, uh, and so that's that's what no, that I, was I kind think of it's... bothered me about that whole like news cycle because they were so pro this mutiny, mutiny and pro Prigozhin, and I'm just like, I like this is this is scary. Like Russia is a nuclear state; they have nuclear weapons. You don't want this guy taking over those nuclear weapons. Yeah, no, I think it's good to point out that sort of short sightedness and that hyper emotional response, right? Like over the last year, 
a little longer now, I guess, what are we at? Like 16, 17 mm-hmm. months since the Russians invaded Ukraine, something like that. They, it's, it's really just been, you know, Putin enemy number one, right? Most evil man on the planet. And that's probably true. I don't know who would be considered more evil than this guy. And like, no one's disagreeing with that, but that sort of conditioning, right? It makes, so makes people have this sort of emotional response so that when you see these headlines and these things of like, there's this person who's marching against Putin and there's like a rebellion or something like that. It it, triggers. Yeah. The sort of, the, the, the sort of short term response in your brain is, Oh, that's good because the enemy of Putin is a good guy because Putin is the worst bad guy. So anyone else is better than him. So I should support the person who's marching against him. Right. It's, it's just right. sort of that emotional, you know, like, uh, like instinctual response to that sort of thing. Whereas when you take a step back and you really evaluate it, it's like you said, this guy, terrible guy poses a lot of issues. If, if this had actually gone through, if you had the scenario where, you know, let's say Putin was killed. Now you have basically warring factions right. in Russia over who's going to take over, who controls the state, who controls, who controls the, nukes. the nukes. That's like my biggest you know? thing. Who cares about what goes on, what goes on in the Russian state, right? Like they've got nuclear missiles that can reach the other side of the world. My home, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, yeah, and it, and and we we don't know. So that's just those are things that you know. Those are the second and third order effects that that you have to think about. You know, with these things, and that's not what we don't think about that when you have that like emotional. As amusing as it would have been sort of to have a response. hot dog seller as a president of a country. <laughs> well, so speaking of transitioning here, speaking of leaders who have been in charge of their country for for forever israel <laughs> forever forever to stretch 20 years it's forever in politics or how about this in politics this? Uh, leaders of countries that just won't leave dude yeah some some people need a some people need to realize there's a reason the lights turn on at the bar mark twain mark twain has a quote that i love and I did see this on a bumper sticker recently, so you know, take it with. So the universe is take telling the you. grain of take this with a grain of salt. Politicians like like diapers need to be changed often, for the same reason. I might be messing up the quote, but you get the <laughs> idea. They get dirty. No, I, I think the, I think the principle is there. Uh... But we're talking. All right. Well, let's let's launch into yeah. I can I, I can go into this. So the reason Mark Twain and the reason there's the, go back to hot dogs. The reason Netanyahu comes up. Um, oh, that's is, what we're talking about. So, BB Netanyahu. So Prime Minister of Israel Netanyahu currently has been off and on since the late nineties. His first term in office, I believe, was ninety-five to ninety-nine. Then he was out for eight years or so, and he's pretty much been prime minister since like oh eight. Since, yeah, since like you were a diaper, a year or since two since you were in diapers. Yeah, you too, <laughs> you too, old man. So the reason this comes up, Netanyahu was his coalition was reelected to the Knesset last year, twenty twenty-two, after he kind of taken a slight. The Knesset is the Israeli parliament, which is their governing body. And 
a few months after getting his coalition back in the Knesset, one of the things that Netanyahu and his supporters brought forth was a proposed reform to the Israeli judicial system. So this was announced back in January of this year. And the the reform is essentially a bill that will have to go through the normal Knesset process of all of the things that come with that and then be signed into law. But the bill essentially does three things. Number one, this bill would give the Israeli government more power to pick judges on the Supreme Court of Israel. Currently, the uh, Supreme Court judges are picked by a panel of other Supreme Court justices and randomly, I believe, randomly selected lawyers who are like certified by the Israeli Bar Association. So it's sort of a it's sort of a board of current Supreme Court justices and Israeli lawyers, huh. and they pick the new That's Israeli like the Supreme Court justices. Of how we do it? Yeah, complete opposite. It's like elites picking more elites. Or so expert, that's the first or part. Gives Israeli government more experts and depoliticizing the process. But I digress. Keep going. There's more than one way to skin a cat. So number one, gives the Israeli government more power to pick pick the Supreme Court judges. Number two, the bill would curtail the court's ability to limit or dismiss certain laws which relate to things such as national security. And then number three, the bill introduces an override clause requiring a simple majority to overrule any Supreme a Court decision. A simple majority of the Knesset. A simple majority oh, of the Knesset. So this, so in writing, this doesn't sound like the most ridiculous thing, right? It's like, oh, this... This is, you know, the the parliament can overturn a Supreme Court decision if they have a majority of the parliament that wants to overturn it. But a simple right? majority, like 50% oh, okay. plus one. Not... It's a simple majority, right? Yeah. So this is, that's the caveat, right? Is that in practice, every government, every governing coalition in Israel has a simple majority because you have to have that to form a government. So basically what it does is it gives the Knesset the ability and the power to completely negate anything or any decision that the Supreme Court makes. So <clears throat> those are sort of the, those are the three primary things that this bill does. So since the bill was announced and introduced in January, there've been ongoing protests in Israel. The protests sort of rose to a, a, a crest and a peak in March this year. In March, there were estimates that at some points over the course of a 24-hour period, there were over 500,000 people who had joined in, in the protests across the country. For just reference and understanding, those would A, be the largest protest in Israeli history, B, for any Americans who are out there, to put that 500K number in perspective, imagine if the entire city, every single resident of Sacramento or Minneapolis or Miami, were out in the streets. There's only five hundred thousand people in Miami. There's got to be more. In like the city proper, the metropolitan area is probably bigger. And but like Sacramento, sure. Who goes to those cities? I just alienated <laughs> half of our listeners. Yeah. A million people. <laughs> they aren't listening to our podcast anyway. Let's be honest; we have like five listeners. 
those. So, but I mean, I I just think that's helpful for yeah. understanding, right? What, like the, what percentage the size, of the, the 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 scope? Pop, what percentage of the Israeli population is that? So that would be approximately ten percent of the total population that's, that's of Israel, big, right? So, like, yeah. that's that's There's only massive. Five million people. Ten percent of there. No, then maybe it would be. Wait. No, it'd be five percent then, because I think Israel's like close okay. to ten mil. Did I just do that math right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, you did. Okay, yeah, so it'd be it's five, big it'd protests. Be about 5%. What, how's so, it evolved? Still, big protests, and then I think but just the last component dogs? of it that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's street <laughs> vendors. I think the the last component that's interesting is just like understanding the the coalition of groups that have come out in opposition to this bill is sort of this like funny marriage of you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of thing because you have all of the tech industry in israel all of the universities okay those two kind of make sense right then you have all of the arab groups then you have a huge contingent of former idf soldiers and also like a lot of the reserve soldiers in the idf saying that basically if this law passes that we're not going to observe our obligation to serve as reservists which that's a really big deal and so you, this, this is like you know there's this really broad coalition of people so who Netanyahu are in opposition to has Netanyahu walked it back at all in response to this is he still continuing with it the protests were in march so so yeah so this was the crust in march right so initially so he did walk it back and he said okay you know he kind of took a step back and said, we'll reevaluate and we'll take an opinion and, you know, we'll see what the public wants and these sorts of things. So since then, they've kind of been working on it behind the scenes. From my understanding, they've been taking some input from the public, but Netanyahu has been going around the horde, sort of beating the drum on, he thinks that this is the right thing to do. This is what we should do. And his claim is basically that they need to do this because the Supreme Court has far too much power at the moment because the Supreme Court does have the ability to overturn any law that the Knesset passes. There is a process that it has to go through and it takes a majority of the judges, but hypothetically, they can overturn any law that the Knesset passes. They can also do things like decide that certain people appointed to positions in the Israeli government are beyond the bound of reasonableness, right? So for instance, Netanyahu had appointed a sort of loyal follower to two ministerial positions after putting being put back in power. And this person had been convicted of like multiple crimes, brought, uh, fraud, bribery, like taking bribes while a government official in the past. And the Supreme Court said, hey, this is beyond the bounds of reasonableness, this this person being appointed to a ministerial position is unlawful. And so he had to be removed and he had to put in a new person. Um, so these are sort of some of Netanyahu's arguments of like, well, the Supreme Court is out of control, they have too much power. And then the last component is that Netanyahu argues that the Supreme Court does not represent the will of the people in Israel because the court tends to be more secular and liberal than sort of like broader Israeli society is not that Israeli society is super conservative or super religious, 
but it's it's a healthy mix of secular and religious and liberal and conservative types. The court itself leans very much more on the liberal secular side of things. So those are kind of Netanyahu's key arguments for why this bill should go through. Israeli society that's supporting the bill. So there, there are there are some. So some of Netanyahu's coalition himself um, are supportive of it. Some of the more religious hardliners in the country are supportive of the bill because I think this can get very nuanced. They can they many people have their own reasons for supporting it. Some of the support can come from the more religious side because it would give the religious parties in the Knesset essentially more power over the government because then what they're doing is if this goes through, they're sort of removing the teeth from the Supreme Court to overturn you know, certain laws that might make an exception for the religious community or you know, give them some preferential treatment or something like that. I'm not saying that that well, how happens all the time or anything like that Court whatsoever. How often exercise but... its, its powers to overturn laws or so I think that's that's the key thing, right? Is it is not often. It's 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 one of those institutions that that the country has done a good job of sort of preserving the status and like recognition of what a big deal it is for the Supreme Court to do that. You know, there, it's not it's not really this hyperactivist court that's just you know throwing out Knesset bills left and right one a week. Type but is thing. it something that could over the next it's, decades I think, evolve to that? Like maybe this is, I'm theorizing here, but maybe Netanyahu sees it as something that could turn into that. And he wants to um, kind of enshrine democratic values in, in Israeli society, in the democratic process, I guess. So I think hypothetically the court could begin to get, abusive in its power in that way a i don't think it's likely b i think this comes back to what some of the core of the reason why netanyahu is going after this is so as a part of this bill it would also give elected officials more protection right because the supreme court wouldn't be able to decide that you know someone should be not allowed to serve in a ministerial position or that they're in this like outside this bound of reasonableness, right? So right now, Netanyahu is technically on trial for bribery and fraud. He's trying to protect himself. And if if he can get this bill through, it gives him protection. It means that he would not have to, he doesn't have to do or go through any of those trials as long as he is in, well, like, take in that an elected of it, office. Is there some version of judicial reform that's not as extreme and doesn't take the teeth as much? Is there maybe some some judicial reform that would, would be a good thing to kind of, you know, inject a little bit more? For example, in, in the U.S., we have the president at, with the, the quote-unquote is advice and consent of the Senate appoint uh, Supreme Court justices. So maybe there's a version that's more, you know, a little bit more politically influenced in that, you know, the prime minister or the governing coalition has more influence over the the judges that get picked. I don't know. Maybe there's an appetite for that instead of going all in on this on this bill. 
Yeah, I think that there, I think that there probably is room for that. So one of the things that's really interesting about Israeli government and the structure of of how their country is run is so they don't have a formal constitution like the United States does, right? So Israel has what's called a set of basic laws, which were some of, yeah. So there's no, there's not a formal constitution where all of these things are enshrined specifically, you know, like these are the, you know, you can't change these, you can't do these, you can't, you know, any of that. It's like the constitution so, is like everything has to, in the U.S., everything has to conform to the constitution. All laws have to follow the constitution. Whereas yes. countries like Germany and Israel is, is, they don't have like a set of rules that precede all other rules. They're just like, okay, we're passing these things because this is how we want our system to work. But like at any time we could go back and say, you know what, we're going to tweak it. And that's what's happening here, right? They're not modifying their constitution because they don't have yeah. one. They're just modifying the set of laws that say how their government works. Yeah. They currently have. Yeah. So I think, you know, there probably would be room for some type of judicial reform to make this process a little bit more robust and probably enshrine some of these powers more distinctly into their you know, separate categories, the Knesset and the Supreme Court and what's allowed and what's not allowed and those sorts of things. And and this is actually one of the key objections of some of the people who are against Netanyahu's judicial reform is they argue that this should be a like a cross-party nationwide consensus sort of thing, not just a governing coalition deciding what law they're going to write. You know, the, the kind of argument is that there should be nationwide referendums that should take proposals and it should, you know, be all of the citizens of the country should, should have a say in this sort of like monumental change to what, their overall what is government. The impact? Okay, so this is all internal Israeli politics, but is there an impact, if any, to like international politics, especially in the, in the Middle East? Um, or is this just kind of a, you know regional regional issue within israel of like making sure that 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 our close u.s ally has as democratic democratic process yeah so i i think it it has it does have broader international implications and that the if this bill goes through it it will have an impact on israel's relationship with a lot of the surrounding countries and some of the impacts of that have already started to be seen i believe uh moody's which is like the international credit rating agency they downgraded israel's credit rating this year which because basically just this? means it's you know less reliable of a country yes as a result of this because of the protests and because the argument was that this would make the country less democratic um ironically the, it makes it more I, democratic but cur- less like protectionist of individual the, liberty the process to do it the process to do it is democratic, but it being complete, I believe, makes the country less democratic. Right? It opens up the country to the right. tyranny of the well, majority. That... Because then there is yeah. no more check on the Knesset. It's purely the governing coalition decides what goes. So, like, the current estimates right now are that there's just the protests and then um, companies have leaving because companies have decided to just leave the country, close some of their offices really? and not deal with it. In any significant until it's resolved. Portion uh, of their economy. Yeah. 
it's current estimates are it's costing about forty billion dollars. Um, so it's like no, that's not an insignificant amount. Country, I think yeah. Israel GDP. Israel GDP is probably mm-hmm. less than a trillion dollars. Well, this is the bill hasn't billion. passed yet. If the like, bill passes, like, I'm sure there could be even most recent estimates. Risk but but yeah, on the flip side, I mean, significantly more, right? If what the Knesset can un- undo, or what the Knesset can do, they can also undo, right? So if they pass this law, Netanyahu leaves this this yes. majority of people. It sounds like majority of people are large minority of people elects parties that change the system again in a few years and and changes the system back to what it was or something better which is not great because then you kind of get probably this back and forth as as different parties are elected into power kind of what we have similar to here in the united states but at, at least it's not permanent is what i'm saying Yeah, it's it's not. Hypothetically, it could be undone. I think, too, though, that this does speak to it's like a symptom of kind of like the broader identity crisis of Israeli politics right now. I think they've had five elections in the last three years. You know, so because it's a parliamentary system, they can call snap elections at any time. And it like the they've just it's just been a revolving door of elections because no group of people has been able to secure like a stable interesting governing coalition and so i think that the country is really in this moment where they're trying to you know it's really trying to decide like what direction do we want to go and there's a lot of you know similar to like in the united states and many other countries around the world there's seemingly a lot of partisan divide and not a ton of on the, on the flip side, there's international on. situation seems to be a lot more stable than it has been in years. They've normalized relations with Saudi Arabia, right? Like, it's I so mean, ironic, their Moody, right? Moody's is getting downgraded. But... Well, okay, they haven't, they haven't, they're, they're not normalized with Saudi Arabia. Okay, what are they? So, we'll, we'll go on. So, uh, the relations with Saudi Arabia, if you ask a Saudi, government official right now they do not have any formal relationship with israel whatsoever they don't recognize israel as a but state. it is going that non-relationship relationship. Like... it's seemingly going in that direction so right in the last in the last five years we've had the abraham accords which was normalization of israeli relations with several arab states so that included morocco the uae um bahrain and am i missing one I don't remember if Qatar was included or not, um, but and then part of that agreement was also an agreement to let Israeli commercial uh, planes fly over Saudi airspace. Previously, that was not allowed. Anytime that Israeli planes were traveling east from Israel, they had to they had to fly around either the north or the south of Saudi Arabia. They were not allowed to fly over Saudi airspace whatsoever. And that was because Saudi, like Saudi Arabia, didn't recognize a lot of these countries. State didn't and a lot of these primarily fell. Arab countries did not recognize Most of Israel, a, a Jewish state, as a as a state. But that is that is since shifted yeah. in the so, Abraham Accords. 
that is yeah that is shifting a lot and now i now you know i believe that normalization between the saudis and israel is on the table i think i was reading that it came up as a potential like concession um you know negotiation that was put on the table by the saudis with the biden administration um in regards to the saudis achieving certain foreign policy initiatives that they wanted and so White House regardless of this kind of internal that conflict, that was this internal turmoil in Israel, they're in a better spot internationally, regionally, than they have been because these states, these countries that have eventually Probably, or yeah. essentially said, hey, we don't recognize Israel. It's a rogue nation. It's a rogue state that's illegally squatting on this on this land. They're now going towards like, no, it's, it is a qualified uh, you know, normal member of the international system, which is, if you know anything about Middle Eastern politics, and I don't, but like even that one, that's a big, big step. So I don't know. This is this is a kind of interesting time, and maybe that stability is what a lot has yeah, allowed it's, it's, you know, to say, hey, maybe we need to take some steps to change our judicial system. Well, I think, I mean, it's all, I think it's all related to each other, right? Like a lot of it comes back to Israel as being one of the leading economies in the region. And it's a, it's a place of hyper-technological growth. It's, you know, it's the Silicon Valley. With, with, it's not with Silicon actual Valley. defense, it you know, has the highest innovation too, because they've had to. Yeah. 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 It's the, it was sort of the effective being between a rock and a hard place you mean an iron defend an iron dome in a hard place was their circumstances yeah exactly <laughs> so but i think you know but like i'm saying this all plays into it because if this bill goes through and a lot of these like entrepreneurs and and the, and the technology and the startup community leaves israel because of it then i think it does put them in a much more tenuous position because a lot of the motivation for some of these Arab countries to normalize relations mm -hmm. is they want a piece of the pot. They see that, you know, Israel is doing really well economically. They do a great job of educating their, of educating their society of, you know, putting out like very smart people who are developing like good, and interesting companies. Drive. And they're like, Hey, we want, we... <laughs> you know, and they're like, Hey, we want, we want, we want to share that. We, we want our country to least, develop at as least well. they're at least the, Israel the faster than any other country companies in, the in their countries to be able to invest in, and make money off the Israeli economy. Yeah. Best, you know, to learn from them, to work together, you know, and I think also uh, there's also sort of this interesting regional alignment going on of the Iranians are essentially in opposition to everyone else in the region. Right. And there's kind of the mm -hmm. whole enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing going on as well, where, you know, some of the, the Sunni Arab states are saying, well, the Iranians hate the Israelis, but we can work with the Israelis and we can learn from them and we can support our own economies by having a relationship with them. And so therefore it kind of creates like a, a bulwark against the Iranians. So maybe we would rather work with them yeah. than ignore them. Kind of more pragmatic approach. So... Well, this has been an interesting, an interesting Very episode. Um, I think we should wrap it up. But you heard it here first: the hot dog mutiny, the hot dog rebellion, the hot dog mutiny. Yeah, and we, we did correctly call Sweden. 
uh, in NATO. Uh, we'll talk more about Call that Sweden. next week. But you have been Andrew. I've been James. Thank you so much for listening to the Unqualified Statesman podcast. Catch you next time. See you next time. You don't have to leave the call.